You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father, I ask that you would uh, come this morning. We trust and believe that you're here, that you're present among us. I just ask, Father, that you would come now in a, in a special way, that you would give us your spirit, Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and the ears of our understanding that you would speak to us. Father, I ask that you would come and through the preaching of your word that you would do something miraculous. Father, I ask that you would come and give strength to those of us that walked in this morning feeling uh, burdened and weak. I ask, Father, that you would come through the preaching of your word, through the power of your spirit, that you would meet those of us who are afraid and that you would give us comfort and confidence in your power. I pray, Father, that you would come to those of us who walk in this morning, walking in rebellion. Those of us that walked in this morning with hearts that are craving something other than you. That you would confront us in this passage, Father, and that you would draw us to you. I pray most of all, Father, for all of us, God, that through this passage that you would um, increase the vision of Jesus inside of us. I confess now, Father, that all of those things that I asked you to do in us, I just ask that you would do in me. I trust you. In Jesus' name. So I uh, had this uh, a picture in my mind as we were worshiping this morning of, um, of like a little kid sitting at a table, um, hungry. And I felt like the, the Lord was, in some regard, confronting my own heart as we spent time worshiping Him through song. And uh, it was just... Uh, like the Spirit was identifying different cravings and hungers inside of me. Uh, most of you that know me well, you know that I struggle with a lot of fear. And for some reason, over the course of this last week, I have struggled with fear um, more than I have in a while. I'm not quite sure why. Other than to say that I think the Spirit confronted me for my, my craving for um, acceptance. My my desire to please people, 
I don't know what kind of desires or cravings or hungers you walked in with this morning. Um, I didn't know what Abe was going to say. Um, I'm assuming from your own journal entry um, in some regard. I'm just uh, I'm thankful for the way that the Spirit of God comes and does what He does in us. And uh, I pray that uh, He would continue that work this morning. You might have walked in this morning um, craving acceptance, or, or maybe, you, maybe you crave justice. Um, you've taken that on yourself. Maybe you, uh, maybe you crave power. You just want to be in control. Uh, can I just proclaim to us that we serve a king, a God who came and dwelt among us, died on a cross, was resurrected on the third day and returned to heaven is going to come back someday. There is no other message that will bring us the healing that we need other than that message. And that all of what you crave, this side of heaven, all of what you fear, this side of heaven, um, will not be satisfied in anything other than Christ himself. And there is no other message that I'd want to come and preach to you this morning other than the message of the gospel. Because in the message of the gospel, we find healing and we find strength. We find courage. We find wholeness. This passage that I've just read really has three parts to it. Very simple. You probably don't need me to stand up here and say much to you about it. But the three parts of this passage. Um, It's three verses, 14, 15, 16, and 14 through about half of 15 is really Paul just saying, hey, I want to come and be with you. And I want to to share with you how you ought to behave, how you ought to live. And then there's section two is really the rest of verse 15 where he gives a massive description of the church. This is what the church is. And then finally in this third section, he gives us a, a, a picture of Jesus. I uh, asked this last week um, in the end of my message. I don't sense that it got much airtime for us over the last week in our gospel communities. The question that I kind of ended our time with last week, and the question is, what is your vision of Jesus right now? What is your vision of Jesus right now, and how does that vision affect your behavior? And I use the word your church engagement, but I'd actually like to kind of change that to more like your church um, presence. Like what kind of presence do you bring when you're gathered with the rest of the church? It's not like engagement, like frequency, like how often are you there and what do you do when you're there necessarily. It's more about presence. What kind of presence do you bring to the room? How does your vision of Jesus affect the presence that you bring to the room as a member of God's church? And then finally, how how does your vision of Jesus affect your proclamation of Jesus in in both your words and and in your actions? The statement that I made last week at the close of our message um, was I believe that the church in the Western world actually worships a really small vision of Jesus. That's what I believe. 
And my prayer all week has been that God reveal to us where our uh, vision of His Son uh, needs to be increased. And I realize that that prayer is too big for uh, me to really affect, and that only the Holy Spirit can affect that. You know? And that's probably part of the hard part, because I must confess that I often think that I would do a much better job of being godly. Which is such a hard realization to come to, isn't it, for, for any of us? See, each of us experiences the world that we live in in a certain way. And our, our experience of life in this world uh, drives us to ask questions, like the list of questions that Abe shared with us this morning. God's providence and sovereignty in this morning is so um, obvious to me. Questions like, how should I behave in light of this circumstance? So you, you look at the world that we live in right now, and you look at the things that move us emotionally and cause us to fear, cause us to be angry and frustrated, and, and you ask this question, what, what am I supposed to do in the midst of this or that circumstance? How do I, how do I respond to that? What do I say in this scenario or that scenario? What, well, what is the church's role in, in all of this in the, in the world? I'm convinced that my vision, my picture of who Jesus is, it actually has a direct consequence on how I behave and how I engage the church or, or how I bring a certain presence to the church, the, the gathered assembly of Jesus' family. And, 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 it, and it directly affects what I proclaim with my mouth and my words, my actions, my, my life proclaims something. So the question again, the core question today is, what is your vision of Jesus right now? What, did you, what picture of Jesus did you walk in here with? I'm going to spend a lot of time this morning unpacking various different visions from my experience of following Jesus for 19 years. And my fear in this is that what I'm about to say might offend some of you. That's, I think, part of what my fear is. I pray that God would use this to challenge you. Number one, I want you to think about how you behave. We think about your behavior. Verses 14 through 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. You've all probably heard this. Actions speak louder than words. Behavior matters. The way we live has a direct consequence not only on those closest to us, but also on those generations that are coming behind us. Our children and our children's children will reap the consequences of how we behave right now. And we are reaping the benefits of those who went before us. Add to that this truth, that the world we live in demands that we conform to its code of conduct. The world demands that we conform while Jesus calls us to be transformed. Oftentimes, I think what happens for us is that we model conformity rather than 
transforming state of worship. The Bible does call us to be in the world and not of it. To be salt and light, to be shining cities on hills in the midst of the wickedness and the perversion of this world. The question is, is what does that look like? You ask 50 Christians that question, and I guarantee you, you will get 50 different answers. And every one of them will be based on a Bible passage somewhere that was proof texted out of context, usually. What does this look like? How should a Christian behave in a culture that is hostile to its very existence? And my guess is that the Ephesian Christians, because Timothy is the pastor of the Ephesian church, my guess is that the Ephesian Christians asked some of the very same questions. Ephesus was a large city with tons of political and economical power. Magic and witchcraft and sexual slavery were some of the major money-making industries in town. Translate that to today, and we, we don't live anything any different, do we? Pagan worship of a sex goddess named Diana. That was part of the very religious fabric of the community. Just to be clear, there, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to wickedness and perversion. Humans have been at this for an awful long time. We don't have a corner on the market here in America in terms of sin. The Ephesian believers were very similar to us. Now, Acts 18 through 20, if you were to spend time reading those, it's a good place in the Bible for some background on, on Ephesians, on the church in Ephesus. Uh, so is the book of Ephesians. Another very good place to go biblically. Um, both of those accounts of the church in Ephesus paint a really interesting, really fascinating picture of a church that constantly made ripples in its community. Constantly made ripples. Picture I get. It didn't make those ripples through its open hostility towards the culture. I'd love for you all to write the word hostility down. That church did not make its ripples in the community through its open hostility towards that culture. Instead, the church uh, made its ripples through its subversive living in holiness in that culture. At one point, um, some of the Ephesian believers were actually thrown out of a local synagogue. Another point, uh, there were a ton of people that came to faith in Christ, and they, they left behind their practice of magic, and they actually began to burn their books to the tune of burning up what appears to be an entire year's worth of salary in books. That's, that's mean they're putting their money where their mouth is at, what we see. Another point, some of the local businesses, this is an interesting account too, some of the local businesses there in town, they threw an absolute stinking riot in the town hall because their businesses uh, were being directly affected by the downturn in the practice of magic and pagan worship. The coppersmiths um, turned and threw a citywide riot because their business wasn't getting enough um, um, business 
um, because people weren't worshiping in this pagan temple as much anymore. And, and Paul, being the fighter that he is, much like me, really wanted to roll over to that uh, riot, um, and the rest of the believers were like, no, bro, let's not pick that fight. He stayed out of it. It's really interesting. If you apply that to who we are here in America and the way that we respond to the things that, that drive us so much and infuriate us so much and scare us so much, I think we see a, a little bit of a different picture. So the church in Ephesus really had its hands full with uh, questions about how to behave in a hostile culture, I believe. Thankfully, Paul has already outlined uh, some of the ways in which the church is to behave. He's already done this. I, I think what happens is when we read this passage, we go, well, how should we behave? Well, let's turn to Romans and look there. I, you know, I think just staying in the context is a good place to go first. Uh, now, Romans chapter 12 is a really good place to go to, but we're not going to go there. Um, he's already said some great things. He's going to say some more throughout this letter. But what has he said? What has he already said in his letter that helps us to know how to live in the midst of a hostile culture? What would be helpful to us? Take a look back. Think about these things. You might recall some of these if you've been studying along with us. Paul says um, early on in the first chapter that we, we must rest secure in the faithful grace, mercy, and peace of God. Like, you just spend a bunch of time there every day resting in God's faithfulness, His grace, His mercy, His peace. I just think sometimes we think that's like an appetizer. It's not. It's like actually the main course, and we ought to stay there. It all says that we've got to confront false teachers in our midst. We need to remember that the law and the gospel go hand in hand. We need to remember that everything that God gives to us is needful. Everything that he withholds from us is not needful. We learn that our hearts need to be anchored to Jesus if we're going to weather the storms of this life. We learn that we are actually called to live and to pray like the gospel is for everyone. There's a lot of nuances there. If you believe the gospel is for everyone, then the way that you will treat everyone is going to look a bit different that maybe you want. Uh, we are also not to let the tail of the culture wag the dog of biblical truth, especially at least in this context, the way that Paul was saying it in regards to gender roles. And we also learn that we really need elders who will oversee, faithfully oversee the spiritual needs of a church family, and we need deacons who will faithfully serve the practical needs of a church family. Long story short here, what Paul is concerned with is he's concerned with Helping the church family live like a church family in the midst of a hostile culture without living in hostility towards that hostile culture. He knows what I think all of us deep down inside instinctively know, and that is this, that hostility towards an already hostile culture, all that's going to breed is more hostility. Not the, not the holiness that we desire. The only thing that you can meet hostility with is holiness. Holiness will trump hostility every time. You may not walk away feeling good about it. Paul focuses, I believe, on instructing family members to live like family members. Which 
brings us to Paul's description of the church. So think about your description of the church for a moment. This is a question I've asked often, and this makes all of us squirm, okay? This makes us all squirm a lot. I often like to ask people, how, how do you describe your dream church? Like, when we started planting the well, it was me and my wife, Christy, and four other adults, and that was a question that I had to answer. People want to know, like, what's the well going to be like? I mean, we didn't even have a name then, so first we had to choose a name. And I had to be able to put words to, what's his dream of what the well is going to look like in 10 years? And that was hard. I still love to ask this question of everyone as often as I can. Typically, I'll get answers that revolve around programs. VBS, Sunday School, Men's and Women's Ministries, short sermon series, good luck with that. Entertaining Sunday gatherings, kids and youth ministries, outreach programs, likable staff, good luck with that too. <laughs> Here's the thing, I, I always try to find those definitions in my Bible. The funny thing is, I think somebody must have tore out some of the pages because I can't seem to reconcile those descriptions of the dream church with the biblical definition. Kind of leaves me at a loss when trying to describe dream church, right? But there are still a few places to look for great biblical definitions of the church. Acts 2 is good. Acts 4 is good. Um, there are a ton of letters in the New Testament, which most of us call epistles, just simply means an apostle wrote a letter to a church that he was a pastor of or planted. So, um, those letters, such as Corinthians, Ephesians, there's two to the Corinthians. Actually, there's a lost one, too, that's not even in there. Um, there's Ephesians, when in reality we have Ephesians plus we have 1st, 2nd Timothy. So there's like three letters to the Ephesian church, really. Um, you got Colossians, that's a church. You got Philippians, got Thessalonians, got Romans, got Galatians. I mean, got all these letters to the churches. And so those are really great descriptors uh, of the church. Um, the entire book of Acts is a description of the church in that day. So tons of ways we can answer this biblically. We could spend a long time there. I'm just uh, simply saying I, I've spent as much time as I could there um, because it's fascinating to me. But uh, those great descriptions of the church don't typically match up or line up with professing Christians and their description of the church. It's like, huh, do you, do you read your Bible? I don't, I don't see that. Now here in this first letter to Timothy, Paul, Paul describes a church. He says it this way, so the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, I want to ask uh, Nancy, could you do me a favor and open the window? Not just the, the, the blind. This is going to matter, I think. Yeah, just the blinds. Yeah, just... Turn it, just turn the little, yeah, do that, that's fine, that works. You can, most of you can see out the window, some of you can't because you're way over there. Just imagine you can see out the window, okay, that's good, you can sit down, you don't have to stay standing, thank you, thank you for helping me out. Everybody give Nancy a round of applause for doing that well. The first glance when you think of uh, this description, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and butchers of the church, uh, truth, first glance, that description doesn't seem that compelling, right? 
Put yourself in the Ephesian Christian shoes for a minute. I want you to see what I think is the Spirit's hand in this, in this window I think will be very important to us. You see, this, the, the city of Ephesus, we put ourselves in the Ephesian Christian's um, shoes. Now, the city of Ephesus was the home of one of the seven wonders of the world. It was called the Temple of Artemis. It was a pagan temple, okay? It was a massive piece of architecture that was built out of white stone. Um, had over a hundred really tall white columns or pillars. Those pillars, those columns were set on a giant foundation of steps that wrapped around the building like a wraparound porch. If you need an image in your head because I spaced off getting an image on the screen for you, just think White House. temple was said to be the household or the home of a Greek goddess named Diana. She was essentially a sex and fertility god, but she was known to be dead, if not a mere figment of the imagination, depending upon which philosopher you decide to read. Essentially, that even the philosophers disagree with each other just as much as Christians do. So, if you're an Ephesian Christian. You were saved out of that culture. That was your city. You heard Paul proclaiming Christ in a public theater possibly, or you heard him in the Jewish synagogue down the street because Paul would oftentimes go to the local church first to proclaim the gospel, gathered assembly, and at the time would have been a synagogue. So it was one of those two places that you would have heard Paul. You're now following Jesus as you look out the window of your tiny little house church. And you're looking out that window of your tiny little house church, and what you see is you see that massive, white piece of architecture. And on the front steps of that massive, white architecture, half-naked temple prostitutes laying around. What should you do? How will you make a mark on that culture? Good. Close the blind. How will you proclaim Christ in that environment? And maybe maybe you feel your heart breaking for those people. They've given themselves over to sexual slavery. Maybe your heart's breaking for them. Maybe your heart's not breaking for them. Maybe you feel what you think is justified anger towards them. How could they live like this? How could they force me to watch and see all of this filth? Maybe that's maybe that. And you have a passage of scripture to back up both. How are you going to behave? What will you do? Well, um, if you look at the church for the last 50 years, here's a few things you could do. Um, You could use some giant signs. Tell them how sinful they are, just in case they don't already know what you believe. At least you wouldn't have to invest in them relationally. 
you could build a bigger temple. You could invite them to come and visit your place of worship. Maybe they'll like what your place of worship offers in terms of services better than the one that they're at right now. You could uh, work hard to get some of your public servants to change public policy. You could get public indecency outlawed. At the very least, you could at least get prostitution outlawed because it's a proven fact, right? We, we all believe this, that somehow changing the laws changes hearts. And we've got Bible passages for that too. What are you going to do? How will you do this? Now, you might be, again, tempted to think that no one should be forced to look out his or her house church window and see that kind of sinful display in public. Uh, you know, another option maybe. You've got a friend who says he's a Christian too. Um, you could just stay silent. You could just pray for them. You could just let God do the work of transforming hearts. Maybe that's what I should do. After all, who are you to judge them anyways, right? Don't you know that we're all sinful? Last week, I, I think I used the word whore to describe us. The Bible uses that word, and after I preached last week, I felt really afraid and sorry that I used that word, but I was actually using the word that the Bible used. Maybe, maybe you should take a glass of water across the parking lot to bring that home even more, right? could just take a glass of water across the parking lot. They look thirsty, but what do you do Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so from your house church saw you over there on the steps of that place with those people. What should you do? How should a Christian behave in this kind of environment, in these kinds of conditions? Now, the interesting thing is Paul's answer seems to focus on none of the above behaviors. Once again, for the life of me, unless somebody stole some pages out of my Bible, all of the prescriptive applications of how we Americans choose to face these issues is not in there. So I, I think in some regard, maybe God just left us with a bunch of freedom, maybe, to choose how we would engage those issues in a practical way possible. I'll I, I have to confess, I don't have the answers totally here, but I do know this. Paul doesn't go there. Um, instead, he goes back to the basics. He describes the church. He describes who he wants us to be. Is he evading the question? He did just say that he wants us to know how we should behave. What does God want us to do in a culture like this? Here is Paul's answer. You are the family or the household of God. You are the assembly or the church of the living God. You hold up and you support the truth like a pillar or a buttress. The idea that we are to live like the family of God reminds me that we are to be salt and light in a dying world. The, the church should have such a presence in a community that it creates thirsty people 
That's what we're to do is to create thirsty people through our living. The church should have such a presence in a community that it creates thirsty people, not by watering down the truth, but by living the truth in word and in deed. And then the idea that we are the assembly of the living God reminds me that when we gather for praise and for preaching and for prayer and for fellowship and for outreach, that God is actually present and alive among us. He's not dead like the dead God of religion across the country. He is, in effect, showing himself off to the world through us. This is what it means to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Pillar supports, lifts high the roof, supports it. Every true biblical church holds up the truth and supports the truth for the entire world to see. The question continues to be, how do we do this? What kind of behavior should we engage in to hold up and support the truth? I can tell you this, I don't believe that it's about bigger buildings. I don't believe, I don't believe that it's about better public policies. I don't believe it's about protest marches. And I certainly don't believe it's about more church programs that wear people out. There's a beautiful thing about a postmodern culture that we live in. And I think the church has yet to find those beautiful pieces rather than just make war against it. What Paul is saying here is really about being so captivated by a grand vision of Jesus that we occupy a space in our community that makes other sinners across the street or across the parking lot. So thirsty for what we have. I just want to ask you, like, does, does your life make other people thirsty for The vision of the Ephesian church, the picture of the Ephesian church, if you, if you read these accounts, here's, here's a picture that I get. It's so, so compelling. So compelling in Ephesus, so, so compelling that prostitutes and, and witches are, are charging the doors of the church building, okay? Not to knock it down in angry opposition, but instead to get a taste of what the Ephesian Christians had. There was something so compelling about the Christians in Ephesus that attracted other sinners to leave their sin behind and follow Jesus. Well, this last time we witnessed prostitutes and witches breaking down the doors of church buildings to become Christians in America. There's something, like you say, something in our DNA from the beginning as Americans that we have failed to confront. Would it be possible? that the church in the Western world needs to own some responsibility for this lack of evangelical fruit? Could it be, once again, that the reason the church is making little headway in the American culture is because we worship a tiny, little, false 
version of Jesus could it be? Think about your vision of Jesus. This might be where I have a tendency to get the most afraid. What is your vision of Jesus right now? How does that vision affect your behavior, your presence, and your public proclamations? My, my experience with the church over the course of 19 years, which is only half as long as some of you, but some of you know so much more about this than I do. <clears throat> but in my experience, I've been left with a certain impression of the church as a whole. And the outcome is that I believe that we need a fresh biblical vision of Jesus if the church is going to live for the glory of God and the good of the community around us. <clears throat> Why don't you consider with me for a moment. I'm going to work through a list. This, from my 19 years, pictures of Jesus that have been painted by the Western church in our recent history, and this is not exhaustive, but it's long. I've seen the Western church present the hippie Jesus. My mom loved that Jesus. The friendly Jesus. Uh, the cool hipster Jesus. The social justice Jesus. The Republican Jesus. The Democratic Jesus. The Libertarian Jesus. The American Jesus. The anti-establishment Jesus. The superhero Jesus. The Fox News Jesus. The CNN Jesus. The History Channel Jesus. The Intellectual Jesus. That's the one I love the most. That's the one I have to confess the most. The Missional Jesus. The Blonde-Haired, Blue-Eyed, Gentle Jesus. The Cultural Rebel Jesus. My Homeboy Jesus. The Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Jesus. I'm pretty sure there's probably millions more that are more culturally driven caricatures of who Jesus is rather than the biblical Jesus. The question is, is, which Jesus do you turn to when your world goes on tilt? Which Jesus do you turn to when your cravings start to get out of control? Which Jesus do you turn to when you feel lonely, when you feel foolish, when you feel overworked, when you feel afraid, when you feel hurt? When you feel insecure, which Jesus do you turn to? I'm convinced that we have learned to cover up the false notions of Jesus that we turn to with all of our good Christian activity. Sit with me for a moment how your vision of Jesus affects what you say and do. I chose ones that um, I am struggling with the most. I already uh, alluded to the intellectual Jesus. The intellectual Jesus will drive me to my books to prove everyone wrong by arguing with them. I have time on my hands, and my job is to contextualize for a church family the gospel. So, I could spend 20 hours a week researching American history. The intellectual Jesus will drive you to your books to prove everybody else wrong by arguing with them. A political Jesus will drive you to the voting booth to get your public policies passed. And hippie Jesus will drive you to the bonfire with a beer to make friends. Hipster Jesus will drive you to the Christian concert to be entertained. Because heaven forbid if it's not Christian. The problem is that I find that so many things that have the label of Christian aren't so Christian. 
bottom line is that my vision of Jesus has a direct consequence on how I behave and the presence that I bring in the local church to the community and what I proclaim in public through my uh, actions and my words. This is why I think Paul finishes all of this by saying, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Most commentators believe that this was an early hymn, or at bare minimum, an early creed. I think Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed, very, very similar. Meaning, another way of putting this would be like a statement of belief for a church. Another way of putting it. What Paul is doing here is he's casting a grand vision of Jesus. Why? Because he knows that if the Christians in Ephesus would only keep their eyes on this grand vision of Jesus, then the culture in Ephesus would be radically transformed rather than conformed. It would be transformed by the truth. What truth? The truth of the gospel. Because that's all your Bible is about is the truth of the gospel. No other truth than the truth of the gospel. Jesus was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, he was revealed by his incarnation and in his resurrection. He was revealed in both of those. Jesus was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. In other words, heaven and earth, all of the cosmos witnessed Jesus condescending from heaven to earth. Save sinners. There is no other greater message. This is what leads Paul to say, why have you abandoned the gospel for another? Even if angels come to you with something that sounds great like a gospel, let them be cut off. Jesus was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. In other words, he was received on earth, and he was also received in heaven. Paul is painting a grand picture of Jesus that we would do well to spend lots of time with rather than just giving him a flip of our attention. Yeah, that was beginner salvation stuff. I'm on to something else, like fighting some battles in the world today. Here's my summary of what Paul is saying. We confess Jesus revealed to us for the forgiveness of our sins. We confess Jesus resurrected on the third day for the hope of eternity. We confess Jesus witnessed by angelic beings in the heavenly realms and by the true church throughout the ages. We confess Jesus as received and believed by sinners for salvation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin for thousands of years. We confess Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father who will return in glory to bring His bride home once and for all. The question is, what is your grand vision of Jesus? And what does your behavior, your, your presence, your engagement with the church and the community as you make a public proclamation about Jesus, what does it say about what you actually believe? Great indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Question, why would the church ever settle for a smaller vision of Jesus? Why? 
why would we commit adultery like that? The hard part is the things that I've said today, I think, could bring a lot of guilt and shame to us. It is a second language for me, if not a primary. So I think it's good just to recognize that, I mean, if you felt some places of condemnation even in what I'm saying, my my prayer is that the Lord would turn that to conviction and that you would remember that Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And not a one of us in this room is perfect. And that's not an excuse, though, to dismiss what the Spirit might speak to us. And I want to recognize, too, at the end of this message, that I am, I am a fallible person. Pretty certain there are some things I've said today that are driven more by my own emotion and more by my own wrestling with how to engage these topics. I pray that the Spirit of the living God, because He's alive, speak to you, convict you, would remind you that there is no condemnation for those who I end there because that's where we're going to head the next few weeks as a series. Some people have been like, "Say," it does talk about the resurrection and the empty tomb, so I think I get a pass there. But um, Romans eight is a beautiful place to go. Thinking about what does it look like for me to have a grand picture of what He's done. So my prayer as we close that the Spirit of the Living God would grant us the gift of catching a greater vision of Jesus. We may know how we ought to behave in a perverse and wicked world as a family and an assembly and a proclaimer of the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and returning in glory. As you look out that window, you think about who's across the street, who's across our nation. I want you to turn your eyes back inside here, and I want you to think about who's sitting right next to you and who's sitting around you. One of the beautiful pictures of the church is diversity. We got different skin color. I'm thankful to the Lord for. We have some different theological leanings. Pretty heavily reformed and Calvinistic. Not ashamed of that. Got a t-shirt that says it. Some of you aren't. <laughs> okay with that. We all should be okay with that. For some of you that, that lean more libertarian, lean more Democratic, or lean more Republican, I just want to know, like, are you a Christian? And if you're really staunch in one of those three categories, and just in terms of politics, can I just ask you this question? Could you still be a Christian and not be either one of those, or be another one? These are good questions for us to ask. And your answer to those questions is directly, directly reveals how big you Jesus supersedes all of these categories. The vision of Jesus is so big. Pray that we would all catch that. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would come and, oh, Father, I beg you to remove anything that I said that was not of you. I pray, Father, that you would do your work in transforming us into the image of your Son. Help us catch a larger vision of Jesus this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.